Exodus chapter 33. Go there. And let's read beginning at verse 18. And we're going to read all the way through verse 9 of chapter 34. Here we go. Exodus 33 at verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me which you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God. Oh, it endures forever. I don't expect you to remember this, but last week I I said that there was a conversation that erupted between Moses and God, and it started in verse 12 of chapter 33. Um, But we finished last week before the conversation was over. Uh, Actually, the most famous part of this conversation uh, begins in verse 18. I mean, that's that's the text before us now, really. And I say famous... Because the most ink has been spilled over this section than in the the previous section. There has been a lot written and a lot sung about this passage. Um, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. It came from here. Or um, rock of ages cleft for me. It came from here. There's been so much written, so much said about God's glory. Because there's so much to say about God's glory. In fact, some of it we can't handle. 
It's beyond us. And so God withholds it. But there is some that he gives us. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Beginning at verse 19, gang, there is, this is a portion of scripture of the entire Bible that is pretty much unique. And of course, the conversation continues with Moses making a request in verse 18, but from verse 19 all the way over to 9. Actually, really through all the end of uh, verse 7 of 34. God does something. He, he engages in a piece of self-description, which is the most extensive piece of revelation to be found anywhere in the Bible. God is describing himself. Moses asks, makes a request in verse 18, and boy, he gets a bunch. And that's what we want to look at this morning. It really begins back up in verse 19, where God says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this pass before you, but I want my name, I want to start with my name. And he begins in verse 19 by giving you his name, which is not the first time, it really appears first in chapter 33. But he says, the Lord now, guys, we're, we're awfully familiar with that term, but um, don't miss the, the significance of it. It is the term from which we get Yahweh. It is the, the famous Hebrew tetragrammaton. It is the first person singular of the verb to be, translated, I am. Um, it's not I will be or I was. Or I, or I said, it is, I am. And there have been countless hours spent trying to figure out, trying to unpack what is in that one term, Yahweh. Certainly these things, I'm sure there's more, but certainly these things are in there. First of all, his self-existence. That is, he owes his existence to no one but himself. He is uncreated. It includes his independence. He depends on no one outside of himself for anything. His self-determination. That is, I am influenced by no outside forces. Nobody makes me do anything. I am the first cause, the prime mover. I am. In fact, there are places in the Old Testament, guys, where, where the text says, or it's translated in English, um, I am the Lord. In Hebrew, that would be, I am the I am. I am the one who named myself I am. That is the term by which God is to be identified in the Old Testament. So Moses makes this request. Hey, God, would you, would, you, would you show me yourself? And he says, first of all, get this. I am. The second thing that he says, guys, has become the source of great conflict in the church. Unfortunately, it's the second half of verse 19. It says, and God is speaking. And he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
Boy, that's controversial. That's so sad that it is, but it is. You know, the, the, the term that is used to summarize that is the theological term sovereign. That's the term that most people, that, that come to most minds uh, when you read that, that the sovereignty of God. And, you know, all Christians uh, believe in the sovereignty of God, or at least they say they do. And, but it doesn't take much conversation to discover that there's precious little that we agree about concerning sovereignty. Sovereignty. You know what a sovereign is, don't you? Sovereign is one who rules. <laughs> let, me, let me try to make it very simple, and then we're going to move beyond this because there's more. Um, in terms of trying to understand his sovereignty, or in terms of trying to understand his this sentence, um, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Think of it like this. Imagine there's a group of men, um, six or seven husbands, who love to play poker together, but their wives don't approve. And so they, they try to get together to play poker once a week, uh, but they're, and, and they're hiding from their wives while they're playing poker. And so um, there's one of them that's got an old barn in the, in the back of his property. So once a week, these husbands, they meet to play poker up in the second story of a uh, little room in the second story of this barn. And uh, when they get in there, they lock the door because they don't want their wives to catch them. But they all got a key to the door to that room in their pocket. They all got a key to the door. And so they're playing poker one day and just having themselves a big time, you know, and um, uh, while they're, while they're uh, engaged in a particular hand, one guy looks up and says, you know, I, I, I think I smell smoke. So he gets up from the table and he goes over to the window and he looks out the window and he says, sure enough, there's a brush fire about two, two blocks away and it looks like it's heading their direction. So he says, hey, guys, there's a, there's a fire out here. We, uh, there's a fire out here, you know, and it's headed our way. And what somebody else says, well, let's finish this hand, and, um, and, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Because we all got the key in our pocket. Same story. Change one item. Take the key out of everybody's pocket. Okay? Same story. Just remove the key out of everybody's pocket. Um, they're playing poker. Guy's got, got his hand and he looks up and says, I, I think I smell smoke. He goes over the window, leaves the table, gets over the window and looks out the window. And sure enough, there's a brush fire about two blocks away. And he says, hey, guys, there's a brush fire headed our way. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what do you think happened to the overall urgency level when these guys realized they didn't have a key in their pocket. You see that? Gang, when we call people to come to Christ and tell them that they got the key in their pockets, how much urgency do you think they hear in that message? Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. As a result of verse 19b, God just took the key right out of your pocket. Now, chapter 34 opens with about five verses there concerning replacing the tablets of the law that Moses broke. That was just an administrative necessity. You know, you broke the others, we've got to get some more. But then we come to verses 6 and 7, which I've entitled, 
a mini theology. Ah, theology. Once was considered the queen of the sciences. But not anymore. Our age, our age clamors for the, um, for the practical, for the relevant, the useful, the utilitarian. You know, um, that theology stuff, it's just a, it's a bit dry and musty. Oh, as for me, give me something that I can use on Monday morning. And um, that theology stuff, that's, <laughs> that's what we pay my preacher for. Well, let me begin by saying that I am very grateful that you pay your preacher. I'm glad about that, and so is my wife. But guys, um, let me, let me try. Let me try and show you of what you are robbing yourself when you adopt such a, a simplistic approach. Guys, this passage, these two verses, verses six and seven, are pretty much unparalleled in all of the Bible. I want to read them to you one more time. Six and seven. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. Those two verses, I'm saying, are pretty much unrivaled. In the entire Bible. There is no place that I know of where we find so much given to us in the span of two verses. Every word is critical to a right understanding of who God is. Now, just a couple of introductory comments before we dive in. Guys, let me remind you. It is God who is giving this information to us. This is not Moses' perception. It is not Paul's perception. It is not my perception. We are being given, we are being allowed to know God based on insights that He Himself is giving to us. He is the speaker in verse 6 and 7. This is not commentary. This is a quote that comes from the the mouth of God. So, whatever notion you may have as to what God is like or what you think He ought to be like, you must put it aside and get your views from what he says he is like. Whatever God you may have has got to be discarded if he isn't like this. Let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen, rather, rather crude. I don't care whether your God loves me. 
But I am very concerned that this God loves me. And if your God is this God, then I'm concerned that he loves me, but not the one that you created. And ladies and gentlemen, the only option for us is to do exactly what Moses does in verse 8 when he hears all this information. He bows his head to the earth and he worships. Stop all this silly talk about, well, you know, the God that I believe in, he would never... I don't care about that God. Oh, my God would never, you know, I don't care about that God. And you shouldn't either. Because very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that God doesn't exist. This one does. And this is the one before whom all of us will stand. And so all of my notions, all of my perceptions, all of my ideas about what God is like, I'm getting a whole lot of information about what he's like right here. Now, guys, as for the details of verses 6 and 7, the the content, the, the raw data, we could spend months on this. But let me just try to make it as simple as I can. Guys, um, uh, it's noteworthy, I think, what's not included in here. You don't get any words about omnipotence or immutability. What you do get can be divided up basically into two halves. I'm I'm just trying to do this in terms of helping you see it. We can divide it up in basically two halves. There There is the mercy grace half. And then there is the justice half. Let let me show you what I mean. You notice that he opens in verse 6 by saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The emphasis and the priority falls squarely on mercy and grace. He begins the first thing he wants you to know. Is that he is full of grace and he's full of mercy and grace. Now. I'm suggesting that the words that follow that are a way, or is his way of explaining what he means by grace and mercy. I'm suggesting that those virtues that come afterwards expand our understanding of what he means by grace and mercy. It is as if he almost says, being merciful and gracious means... I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm abounding in faithfulness. And I forgive sin. He delights in magnifying mercy and grace. And then we come to the second half that is introduced to us by the conjunction, but... Down in verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Now, gang, I, I'm not sure that, that you see at first blush the, the beauty of that. I'm not sure it's quite struck us yet, but let me, let me try to, to explain more of the beauty of that statement. Gang, hang with me. This isn't all that hard. In philosophy, this is called a non sequitur. There is an asymmetry to what you just read. 
You know what a non sequitur is? A non sequitur, it means that verse 7b is not exactly what you might have expected to follow verses 6 and 7a. Um, what he says is, I'm loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving, but I also punish. That's a non sequitur. You wouldn't logically put that on the heels of, right next to, I'm loving, gracious, and merciful, and, and I forgive. There is, for us, somewhat of an incongruity in that. Wait, wait, wait. Well, which is it? Wait, which, which are you? Well, let, me, let me give you an example. I mean, guys, in, in our home, and, and maybe, maybe in some of yours as well, this is how things operated. Susie was grace. I was law. And there was a, there was a semblance of balance, not perfect balance in our home, but there was a semblance of balance because Susie was, and he is, such a nice person, and I am such a donkey. So, however, when hard things had to be done, in walked donkey, I mean daddy. Daddy came because daddy was law, mama was grace. Now, there, there was a little bit of grace in me and a little bit of law in her. And there was a little bit of each of those in both of us, yes. But primarily, she was grace and I was law. My point is simply, ladies and gentlemen, you don't find this combination in a human being. You don't, you're not both law and grace bound up in the same person. There's only one of those. God. We may have a little law or a little grace, but He is the essence of both of those. He is maximum both. He is pure love. Pure justice. Folks, think with me. What we're studying is being spoken to an audience via Moses who just got caught worshiping a calf god and throwing one whale of a party. And again, theology is only boring to people who have never seen their sin. But if you know your sin, you hang on to every word of this. You've just been caught. Engaged in the raucous behavior of idolatrous partying. And God steps forward and says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. For a people who don't know their guilt. Okay, move on, Jimmy. But for people who do, that is honey for our souls. But gang, stay with me. That's not all the good news. It doesn't stop there. Because for many of us, and the longer I'm in the pastorate, the more I know how many of you, for many of us, our guilt over our sin is not the only thing that keeps us up at night. What do you say to the mother of two small toddlers whose husband just walked out on her because she doesn't, he doesn't want to be married anymore? What do you say to the victim of sexual abuse by her uncle from age 8 to age 12 who still has Christmas with them? What do you say to the man who spent four years in prison because his secretary learned how to use the word sexual harassment to her advantage? What do I say to my son-in-law who was mugged by ten thugs and almost killed? What do I say to him? I say, he will by no means clear the guilty. And in him, we must rest. Guys, the human heart groans under the weight of its own guilt. But that burden is just made so much heavier because we live in a world that's dripping with injustice. And to that troubled heart, I say this. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ladies and gentlemen, forgiveness is available and justice will be done not by some Jody Foster vigilante but by God so be still my soul two of the deepest longings of the human heart 
for forgiveness and for justice. Addressed by theology. How about that? One more thing and I'm done. Guys, because God is like this, Moses pleads with him for forgiveness. And the basis of his plea has nothing whatsoever to do with who Moses is or what he has done. He applies for forgiveness based on who God just revealed himself to be. God, because you are this... Would you forgive this stiff-necked generation of ours? Because our only hope is not in our performance, oh God, no. Our only hope is to be found in who you are, what you're like, and what you told us you're like. You you, you might remember that um, this whole thing started with Moses saying, Would you show me your glory? And, and it was, it's almost like God ignored that. It's, it's not like he even addressed that part. It's like he, like he said, oh, um, Moses, about that glory thing, uh, I, I'm going to answer that. But not right now. The, the answer will come later. And it came. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where John says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Moses You wanted to see my glory, did you? Well, here he is. I'll show you my glory, Moses. And then my glory. Not a reflection, but the essence of my glory. He who is glory. He will go to a cross and he will die in the place of all you who are stiff-necked and have chosen to worship a calf and love parties. The payment for sin will come by the only one who could tell me all I needed to know about the glory of God. Jesus Christ. Our Father, I I do pray that you will um, grab the attention and the imagination of your people and cause them to see the great charm and beauty 
and profundity of you describing yourself the way you have. And what a delight and a privilege it is for us to see it, to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to take it deep into the base of our souls and to remember that justice will come and that forgiveness is ours in Christ. Do that, Father, so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ can be built up and expanded. We ask it in Jesus' name.